Book the Third, Chapter Fifteen, Part Three of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins, Chapter Fifteen, Part Three. Wait a minute," said Bashwood the younger. Are you as certain as ever that Mr. Armadale is the man? What man? The man who is going to marry her. Yes, yes, yes. Let me go, Jemmy, let me go. The spy set his back against the door, and considered for a moment. Mr. Armadale was rich. Mr. Armadale, if he was not stark mad too, might be made to put the right money value on information that saved him from the disgrace of marrying Miss Gwilt. It may be a hundred pounds in my pocket if I work it myself, thought Bashwood the younger, and it won't be a halfpenny if I leave it to my father. He took up his hat and his leather bag. Can you carry it all in your own addled old head, Daddy? he asked with his easiest impudence of manner. Not you. I'll go with you and help you. What do you think of that? The father threw his arms in an ecstasy round the son's neck. I can't help it, Jemmy," he said in broken tones. "You're so good to me. Take the other note, my dear. I'll manage without it. Take the other note." The son threw open the door with a flourish, and magnanimously turned his back on the father's offered pocketbook. "Hang it, old gentleman! I'm not quite so mercenary as that," he said, with an appearance of the deepest feeling. "Put up your pocketbook and let's be off." If I took my respected parents' last five-pound note, he thought to himself, as he led the way downstairs, how do I know he mightn't cry halves when he sees the color of Mister Armadale's money? Come along, Dad," he resumed. "We'll take a cab and catch the happy bridegroom before he starts for the church." They hailed a cab in the street and started for the hotel, which had been the residence of Midwinter and Allan during their stay in London. The instant the door of the vehicle had closed, Mister Bashwood returned to the subject of Miss Gwilt. "Tell me the rest," he said, taking his son's hand and patting it tenderly. "Let's go on talking about her all the way to the hotel. Help me through the time, Jemmy. Help me through the time." Bashwood the younger was in high spirits at the prospect of seeing the color of Mister Armadale's money. He trifled with his father's anxiety to the very last. Let's see if you remember what I've told you already," he began. "There's a character in the story that's dropped out of it without being accounted for. Come, can you tell me who it is?" He had reckoned on finding his father unable to answer the question, but Mister Bashwood's memory for anything that related to Miss Gwilt was as clear and ready as his son's. "The foreign scoundrel who tempted her and let her screen him at the risk of her own life," he said. Without an instant's hesitation, don't speak of him, Jemmy. Don't speak of him again. I must speak of him," retorted the other. "You want to know what became of Miss Gwilt when she got out of prison, don't you? Very good. I'm in a position to tell you. She became Mrs. Manuel. It's no use staring at me, old gentleman. I know it officially. At the latter part of last year, a foreign lady came to our place with evidence to prove that she had been lawfully married to Captain Manuel, at a former period of his career. 
when he had visited England for the first time. She had only lately discovered that he had been in this country again, and she had reason to believe that he had married another woman in Scotland. Our people were employed to make the necessary inquiries. Comparison of date showed that the Scotch marriage, if it was a marriage at all, and not a sham, had taken place just about the time when Miss Gwilt was a free woman again. And a little further investigation showed us that the second, Mrs. Manuel, was no other than the heroine of the famous criminal trial, whom we didn't know then, but whom we do know now, to be identical with your fascinating friend, Miss Gwilt. Mr. Bashwood's head sank on his breast. He clasped his trembling hands fast in each other, and waited in silence to hear the rest. "'Cheer up,' pursued his son. "'She was no more the captain's wife than you are, and what is more, the captain himself is out of your way now. One foggy day in December, last, he gave us the slip, and was off to the continent. Nobody knew where. He had spent the whole of the second Mrs. Manuel's five thousand pounds in the time that had elapsed, between two and three years, since she had come out of prison. And the wonder was where he had got the money to pay his traveling expenses. It turned out that he had got it from the second Mrs. Manuel herself. She had filled his empty pockets, and there she was, waiting confidently in a miserable London lodging, to hear from him and join him as soon as he was safely settled in foreign parts. Where had she got the money, you may ask, naturally enough? Nobody could tell at the time. My own notion is, now, that her former mistress must have been still living, and that she must have turned her knowledge of the Blanchard's family secret to profitable account at last. This is mere guesswork, of course, but there's a circumstance that makes it likely guesswork to my mind. She had an elderly female friend to apply to at the time, who was just the woman to help her in fettering out her mistress's address. Can you guess the name of the elderly female friend? Not you? Mrs. Oldershaw, of course. Mr. Bashwood suddenly looked up. Why, she should go back, he asked, to the woman who had deserted her when she was a child. I can't say, rejoined his son, unless she went back in the interests of her own magnificent head of hair. The prison scissors, I needn't tell you, had made short work of it with Miss Gwilt's love-locks, in every sense of the word, and Mrs. Oldershaw, I beg to add, is the most eminent woman in England, as restorer-general of the dilapidated heads and faces of the female sex. Put two and two together, and perhaps you'll agree with me in this case, that they make four. Yes, yes, two and two make four, repeated his father impatiently. But I want to know something else. Did she hear from him again? Did he send for her after he had gone away to foreign parts? The captain? Why, what on earth can you be thinking of? Hadn't he spent every farthing of her money? And wasn't he loose on the continent out of her reach? She waited to hear from him, I dare say, for she persisted in believing in him. But I'll lay you any wager you like. She never saw the sight of his handwriting again. We did our best at the office to open her eyes. We told her plainly that he had a first wife living, and that she hadn't the shadow of a claim on him. She wouldn't believe us, though we met her with the evidence. Obstinate, devilish obstinate. 
I dare say she waited for months together before she gave up the last hope of ever seeing him again. Mr. Bashwood looked aside quickly out of the cab window. "'Where could she turn for refuge next?' he said, not to his son, but to himself. "'What in heaven's name could she do?' "'Judging by my experience of women,' remarked Bashwood the younger, overhearing him, "'I should say she probably tried to drown herself, but that's only guesswork again. It's all guesswork at this part of her story. You catch me at the end of my evidence, Dad, when you come to Miss Gwilt's proceedings in the spring and summer of the present year.' She might, or she might not, have been desperate enough to attempt suicide, and she might, or she might not, have been at the bottom of those inquiries that I made for Mrs. Oldershaw. I dare say you'll see her this morning, and perhaps, if you use your influence, you may be able to make her finish her own story herself. Mr. Bashwood, still looking out of the cab window, suddenly laid his hand on his son's arm. "'Hush! hush!' he exclaimed, in violent agitation. We have got there at last. Oh, Jemmy, feel how my heart beats. Here is the hotel. Bother your heart, said Bashwood the younger. Wait here while I make the inquiries. I'll come with you, cried his father. I can't wait. I tell you I can't wait. They went into the hotel together and asked for Mr. Armadale. The answer, after some little hesitation and delay, was that Mr. Armadale had gone away six days since. A second waiter added that Mr. Armadale's friend, Mr. Midwinter, had only left that morning. Where had Mr. Armadale gone? Somewhere into the country. Where had Mr. Midwinter gone? Nobody knew. Mr. Bashwood looked at his son in speechless and helpless dismay. Stuff and nonsense, said Bashwood the younger, pushing his father back, ruffling to the cab. He's safe enough. We shall find him at Miss Gwilt's. The old man took his son's hand and kissed it. Thank you, my dear, he said, gratefully. Thank you for comforting me. The cab was driven next to the second lodging, which Miss Gwilt had occupied, in the neighborhood of Tottingham Courtyard. Stop here, said the spy, getting out, and shutting his father into the cab. I mean to manage this part of the business myself. He knocked at the house door. "'I've got a note for Miss Gwilt,' he said, walking into the passage the moment the door was opened. "'She's gone,' answered the servant. "'She went away last night.' Bashwood the younger wasted no more words with the servant. He insisted on seeing the mistress. The mistress confirmed the announcement of Miss Gwilt's departure on the previous evening. "'Where had she gone to?' The woman couldn't say. How had she left? On foot. At what hour? Between nine and ten. What had she done with her luggage? She had no luggage. Had a gentleman been to see her on the previous day? Not a soul, gentle or simple, had come to the house to see Miss Gwilt. The father's face, pale and wild, was looking out of the cab window as the son descended the house steps. "'Isn't she there, Jemmy?' he asked, faintly. "'Isn't she there?' "'Hold your tongue,' cried the spy, with the native coarseness of his nature, rising to the surface at last. "'I'm not at the end of my inquiries yet.' He crossed the road, and entered a coffee-shop, situated exactly opposite the house he had just left. 
In the box nearest the window, two men were sitting, talking together anxiously. "'Which of you was on duty yesterday evening, between nine and ten o'clock?' asked Bashwood the younger, suddenly joining them and putting his question in a quick, peremptory whisper. "'I was, sir,' said one of the men, unwillingly. "'Did you lose sight of the house?' "'Yes, I see you did.' "'Only for a minute, sir.' "'An infernal blackguard of a soldier came in.' "'That will do,' said Bashwood the younger. "'I know what the soldier did, and who sent him to do it. "'She has given us the slip again. "'You are the greatest ass living. "'Consider yourself dismissed.' "'With those words, and with an oath to emphasize them, "'he left the coffee-shop and returned to the cab. "'She's gone!' cried his father. "'Oh, Jemmy! Jemmy, I see it in your face!' He fell back into his own corner of the cab, with a faint, wailing cry. "'They're married!' he moaned to himself, his hands falling helplessly on his knees, his hat falling unregarded from his head. "'Stop them!' he exclaimed, suddenly rousing himself and seizing his son in a frenzy by the collar of the coat. "'Go back to the hotel!' shouted Bashwood the younger to the cabman. "'Hold your noise,' he added, turning fiercely on his father. "'I want to think.' The varnish of smoothness was all off him by this time. His temper was roused. His pride, even such a man has his pride, was wounded to the quick. Twice had he matched his wits against a woman's, and twice the woman had baffled him. He got out on reaching the hotel for the second time, and privately tried the servants with the offer of money. The result of the experiment satisfied him that they had, in this instance, really and truly no information to sell. After a moment's reflection, he stopped, before leaving the hotel, to ask the way to the parish church. The chance may be worth trying, he thought to himself, as he gave the address to the driver. Faster, he called out, looking first at his watch and then at his father. The minutes are precious this morning and the old one is beginning to give in. It was true. Still capable of hearing and of understanding, Mr. Bashwood was past speaking by this time. He clung with both hands to his son's grudging arm, and let his head fall helplessly on his son's averted shoulder. The parish church stood back from the street, protected by gates and railings, and surrounded by a space of open ground. Shaking off his father's hold, Bashwood the younger made straight for the vestry. The clerk, putting away the books, and the clerk's assistant, hanging up a surplice, were the only persons in the room when he entered it, and asked leave to look at the marriage register for the day. The clerk gravely opened the book, and stood aside from the desk on which it lay. The day's register comprised three marriages, solemnized that morning, and the first two signatures on the page were— Alan Armadale and Lydia Gwilt. Even the spy, ignorant as he was of the truth, unsuspicious as he was of the terrible future consequences to which the act of that morning might lead, even the spy started when his eye first fell on the page. It was done. Come what might of it, it was done now. There, in black and white, was the registered evidence of the marriage which was at once a truth in itself, and a lie in the conclusion to which it led. 
there through the fatal similarity in the names there in midwinter's own signature was the proof to persuade everybody that not midwinter but allan was the husband of miss gwilt bashwood the younger closed the book and returned it to the clerk he descended the vestry steps with his hands thrust doggedly into his pockets and with a serious shock inflicted on his professional self-esteem the beetle met him under the church wall he considered for a moment whether it was worth while to spend a shilling in questioning the man and decided in the affirmative if they could be traced and overtaken there might be a chance of seeing the color of mr armadale's money even yet how long is it he asked since the first couple married here this morning left the church about an hour said the beetle how did they go away the beetle deferred answering that second question until he had first pocketed his fee you won't trace them from here sir he said when he got his shilling they went away on foot and that is all you know about it that sir is all i know about it left by himself even the detective of the private inquiry office paused for a moment before he returned to his father at the gate he was roused from his hesitation by the sudden appearance within the church enclosure of the driver of the cab i'm afraid the old gentleman is going to be taken ill sir said the man bashwood the younger frowned angrily and walked back to the cab as he opened the door and looked in his father leaned forward and confronted him with lips that moved speechlessly and with a white stillness over all the rest of his face she's done us said the spy they were married here this morning the old man's body swayed for a moment from one side to the other the instant after his eyes closed and his head fell forward toward the front seat of the cab drive to the hospital cried his son he's in a fit this is what comes of putting myself out of my way to please my father he muttered sullenly raising mr bashwood's head and loosening his cravat a nice morning's work upon my soul a nice morning's work the hospital was near and the house surgeon was at his post will he come out of it asked bashwood the younger roughly who are you asked the surgeon sharply on his side i am his son i shouldn't have thought it rejoined the surgeon taking the restoratives that were handed to him by the nurse and turning from the son to the father with an air of relief which he was at no pains to conceal yes he added after a minute or two your father will come out of it this time when can he be moved away from here he can be moved from the hospital in an hour or two the spy laid a card on the table i'll come back for him or send for him he said i suppose i can go now if i leave my name and address with those words he put on his hat and walked out he's a brute said the nurse no said the surgeon quietly he's a man between nine and ten o'clock that night mr bashwood awoke in his bed at the inn in the borough he had slept for some hours since he had been brought back from the hospital and his mind and body were now slowly recovering together a light was burning on the bedside table and a letter lay on it waiting for him till he was awake it was in his son's handwriting and it contained these words 
My dear dad, having seen you safe out of the hospital and back at your hotel, I think I may fairly claim to have done my duty by you, and may consider myself free to look after my own affairs. Business will prevent me from seeing you to-night, and I don't think it at all likely I shall be in your neighborhood to-morrow morning. My advice to you is to go back to Thorpe Ambrose, and to stick to your employment in the steward's office. Wherever Mr. Armadale may be, he must, sooner or later, write to you on business. I wash my hands of the whole matter, mind, so far as I'm concerned, from this time forth. But if you like to go on with it, my professional opinion is, though you couldn't hinder his marriage, you may part him from his wife. Pray take care of yourself. Your affectionate son, James Bashwood. The letter dropped from the old man's feeble hands. I wish Jemmy could have come to see me to-night, he thought, but it's very kind of him to advise me, all the same. He turned wearily on the pillow, and read the letter a second time. Yes, he said, there's nothing left for me but to go back. I'm too poor and too old to hunt after them all by myself. He closed his eyes. The tears trickled slowly over his wrinkled cheeks. I've been a trouble to Jemmy, he murmured faintly. I've been a sad trouble, I'm afraid, to poor Jemmy. In a minute more, his weakness overpowered him, and he fell asleep again. The clock of the neighboring church struck. It was ten. As the bell tolled the hour, the tidal train, with Midwinter and his wife among the passengers, was speeding nearer and nearer to Paris. As the bell tolled the hour, the watch on board Allen's outward-bound yacht had sighted the lighthouse off the land's end, and had set the course of the vessel for Ushant and Vinistiere. The End of Chapter 15 Part 3 The End of the Third Book